Welcome to the Thought Leader Podcast. I'm Dr. Kent. And I'm Randy Baker. And in these podcasts, we try to find guests who are true thought leaders, who have truly done something interesting and different and challenged the way we think. In the kind of crazy melee of ideas out there, some folks really find the signal through the noise and kind of shoot straight. And Andrea is that way. I love I love the way that, you know, this coming interview, the way she she talks about some pretty crazy situations in her life that, that happened to her, some things, and how she went forward, not just kind of overcoming it or something. She literally is changing the world and has impacted thousands of people uh, and continues to do so. And I don't want to give away any of her her fire but you have to listen to what has happened to her in her life and how she has used that to impact literal thousands of people and how she is planning to impact tens of thousands in the future the cool thing about thought leadership is that often it doesn't come from years of study but often it comes from difficult situations extremely difficult situations that you find novel solutions for and that's what uh, Andrea Wilson Woods story is all about. So listen up. So Andrea, uh, really nice to chat with you. Um, there, you know, I have to always clue the the listeners in as to what we're looking at, but you've got a really cool kind of look. Uh, it makes me feel like you're at the highest level just by the quality of the video and the lighting. So give us the secrets to your your lighting and and how you show up on on camera. I can't, I don't know that I have any big secrets. (laughs) Um, I use a Logitech headset for sound as we were talking before you hit record. I just, I like it better. It's more consistent than having headphones and a separate Yeti mic. And um, as far as uh, quality, I, I use a Logitech webcam i can't remember which model it is it's not the brand new but it was a couple years ago and then when i don't have enough natural light i actually use a a diva lamp but it is not on right now because i get a lot of natural light in my office during the day so i I guess you should start there location 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 (laughs) that's awesome and so your your reputation precedes you i think you know you've done some amazing work um But let me just ask you um, about the path of all of that. How did you stumble into this work? What's your origin story? Um, Yeah, if you can put it in a nutshell for us, that'd be beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So I have been working in the cancer space for over 18 years, um, and it goes back even further than that. When I was 22 years old, I was living in Los Angeles. I graduated from school and I ended up getting custody of my then eight-year-old sister, Adrian. And I raised her all through my 20s um, until she was diagnosed very suddenly with stage four liver cancer a month after her 15th birthday, which was 20 years ago now. And because it was so long ago and because of many other factors, um, there was very little of anything that could be done, even though she did many rounds of chemo. 
And so her cancer journey only lasted 147 days. And the following year, I was 30 years old and I just didn't know what to do because everything I had cared about before didn't really seem to matter anymore. And losing her really changed the whole course of my life. It's a heartbreaking story. And and again, something for the listeners, which is even after, well, of course, but even after this many years, you can see, and even after you've spoken about this a, a million times, I can still see the emotion of it, right? This is this is close to home. Yeah, I'm going to toss to Randy because I think um, he's he's experienced some of the stuff that I have not. Yeah. Um, so my wife died from cancer, and her journey was six months, so oh. just a month longer than your sister's. I find it um, find it fascinating that you took the opportunity to um, memorialize your sister by creating Cancer University. I would like to understand what that is and how that works. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so sorry for your loss, Randy. Um, yeah. yeah. I, so after my sister died, like I said, I really didn't know what to do with my life. What I had wanted had really changed. And so... I decided I wanted to volunteer for any organization that was doing work in liver cancer. And again, this now was still about 19 years ago. And there wasn't a single nonprofit in the U.S. doing anything in primary liver cancer, also known as hepatocellular carcinoma. And I even called the largest liver disease volunteer organization at the time and begged them to let me volunteer. I said, I'm a writer. I do marketing. I can create something for you. And they said no. And I laugh about it now because if they had not said no, my, my, where I am now would not, you know, exist probably. But I really just, looked and was like, wow, no one is doing anything about this. I knew from my understanding of the disease, it was only going to increase. And it is one of the few cancers on the rise in the U.S. And that's when I um, founded Blue Fairy, the Adrian Wilson Liver Cancer Association. So that is my nonprofit that's been around for 18 years. And Blue Fairy's mission is to prevent, treat, and cure primary liver cancer, specifically hepatocellular carcinoma, through research, education, and advocacy. And we are still the only charity that I know of in the U.S. narrowly focused on that very specific cancer. And out of my experience doing all this patient advocacy and education came Cancer U, which I co-founded three years ago. It is very different. It's a for-profit social impact health tech startup and addressing all cancers. So it's an online platform for cancer patients and caregivers to educate, empower, and engage them to become advocates for their care, to improve outcomes, reduce stress, and also lower cost. So very different company. I love the I love the sound bite. Uh, ability you have there with cancer you I, I love you know how cleanly and how beautifully you're able to say what what the problem is and, and what your solution is so that that's um fun to hear and I don't just dive into the I want a profit versus for-profit yeah. um discussion because it, it, it's true it's so true in both yeah, Randy knows this <laughs> much better than I do so I'm in his space here but but it's so true that nonprofits just can't move as fast. And it's just, it's a different space. So what are your opinions on what you've seen over 18 years in the nonprofit space and, and what this, this new experience is like? 
Yeah, in the nonprofit space, um, things move very slowly. It is highly competitive and just the way everything is set up in terms of trying to get grants, whether you're getting the grant from a private foundation or a corporate sponsor or the government, you know, you're always going up against another nonprofit who is in the same space as you. And it's it's very difficult. I mean, for Blue Fairy, we didn't really get traction for over 10 years because no one really cared about liver cancer. It was it was still considered a rare disease in the US and I still technically think it is, but it's one of the most common cancers worldwide and the third largest cause of cancer deaths worldwide. And so Blue Fairy was really, it was a long road. It was a tough road. And it kind of got to this point where finally enough people were getting diagnosed with this disease that people started paying more attention and the pharmaceutical industry thought, okay, maybe we can develop drugs to help these patients and, and you know, lengthen their life with a good quality of life. And that was a real turning point for us. And, and it made a huge difference in how we grew and the amount of funding we could get and our presence as a national nonprofit. It's just a very different trajectory. I, I, it really was. You want me to compare to Cancer You now? <laughs> yeah, please. Please do that. Um, I knew with Cancer You, I didn't want it to be another patient advocacy group because of the way it was going to be structured and because I did want to grow it as fast as possible and reach all different types of cancer. And I knew there was a real need for what we were doing. I did vet the idea for over six months um, after doing really well in this international entrepreneurial competition. And it's a totally different animal because you're not raising funds that are 100% tax deductible. With Cancer U, I actually bootstrapped the company um, for three years. And now we're at a really critical point where we're raising a seed round of funding to take everything to the next level. And that's really different. You know, with Blue Fairy, the way we got started was I and several other board members did marathons. We kind of copied the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society of doing these marathons. Mind you, I'm a horrible runner, but doing marathons and raising money. And so that's how we raised the seed money to get Blue Fairy off the ground. Whereas with Cancer mm -hmm. U, I've put all of my money, uh, retirement, everything I have into it to bootstrap it and get it off the ground. We come across many, many people who have big hearts and who want to do big things. And many of them go down the, the non-profit pathway. It's very difficult sometimes to get them to understand that they can have far more impact by finding a for-profit pathway and then using that money philanthropically mm -hmm. into their non-profit. And so we always recommend find a an income path that will allow you to um, put your money into the non-profit. I have to find that phone and turn it off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a great book called Charity Case. I can't think of the author right now, um, but it's easy to find. And it's this whole argument for why being a for-profit patient advocacy group, how just what you said, Randy, you can make a much bigger impact can actually raise more money. And um, it's, it's a really interesting book. And the guy also did a TED talk about it. So you're, you're looking for seed funding and so on. 
So at this phase, we're always talking about what we call, well, <laughs> some folks call reputation capital. So like you've, you've built up street cred, you have a story, you've got some amazing partners from, you know, what we were able to see, but how do you pull all the threads together? What's the, what's the appearance that you have to have in the marketplace with your company and where do you feel like the gap is right now? And obviously there, there are folks out there that might be interested in, you know, helping to push or, or being involved in all those things. But uh, what does that picture look like? Well, for cancer use specifically, and I can't speak for other startups, I don't know, but we get the advice a lot and it drives me crazy that you should raise money from family and friends. And my mm-hmm. co-founder and I are like, well, if, if we could have raised money from family and friends, we would have done that. Um, and there was even a, an investor in Silicon Valley during a webinar or something who said that if you can't raise money from family and friends, then you shouldn't even start a company. Well, that's ridiculous. And, you know, it, it, that is totally ridiculous. Just because you don't come from money doesn't mean you can't raise money in some way, shape or form, whether you get it from angels or VCs, or you take out a business loan, or you do a crowdfunding, you know, you can find different ways to raise the money. I even got a little snippy with one person who said that to us. It was kind of like one too many had said that at that point. I was frustrated. And I said, did it ever occur to you to ask why I had custody of my sister? You know, I got custody when I was 22 and she was eight. Do you really think that I came from money? Our mother was a drug addict. <laughs> you know? I mean, it just, you know, come on, think it through. And while I think it's well meaning advice and the intention is good, I think it's it's very it's kind of an empty platitude in many ways. And it's very generic. I don't know if I answered your question. <laughs> You did. No, I, I love I love this direction. I'm waiting for Randy to chime in because this is yeah. This so is, uh, the three F, uh, family, friends, and fools is the traditional <laughs> way of of raising money, and that is because investors are not gamblers. Right. Investors want to see the pathway to some sort of return sure. at some point in the future, and. They will very, very rarely will they support uh, an idea or a concept. And that's why they say, you know, the friends and family and fools round is the way to go to get the money, to get started, to generate some interest, to generate some, uh, build a prototype, build more than an idea, get some interest, get some traction going. And then you can start getting the angels interested because nobody who the argument is that nobody who doesn't already know you is likely to invest in an idea. If they know you, they, they're investing in you, not your idea. They're investing right. in their belief in you. There are other ways of doing it. They're also very difficult. But one of the things that can ease that pathway is to get people to know who you are before you start raising funding. Now, you've had you know, a good period of time with Blue Fairy to become known within certain circles. Sure. People will start supporting you because they've seen what you've done. Most people don't have that that history, that background, and the connections that have come from that. So therefore, they really are stuck either putting in their own money, getting money from family, friends, or fools, or a business <laughs> loan, as you say. Okay. I find it very disturbing that that's the advice that 
investors often give without knowing enough about you or about your background or about where you've come from. And, and I think it's something that um, the crowdfunding opportunities now can get around that. But reputation capital becomes the, the thing. Who are you and who knows you and how do you get more people to know you so that you can impact more people? Yeah, I agree. One of the best decisions I ever made was getting my book published in 2019. Mm -hmm. And I had been working on it for an incredibly long time. And finally, I was like, no, this is going to really help. It's going to open doors. And in fact, we ended up not meeting, but I guess signing with our investment bank partner out of New York. What really changed everything for him, he was already interested in what we were doing and um, and who I was, but we had just barely met. Uh, but I just said, Do you, would you like to read my book? And he said, oh, sure, send me a copy. And, and that changed everything mm -hmm. for him because mm -hmm. after reading my book, he really did understand who I was and why I do what I do. And so whenever there's an opportunity to do something like that, you know, I'm more than happy to do it. And, and I think a lot of entrepreneurs go go down that path that they have a, a book or, or something that they that showcases who they are and their talents. Not not enough. <laughs> so what's what's amazing? So uh, coming from, you know, I'm a book publisher. So coming out of the book space, you have the two sides. The one side is people have the pipe dream that the book will make them a ton of money, which eh. not directly. Nah. <laughs> no, not, not even if you're Seth Godin. But the, the other, the flip side is what you just said. I mean, uh, you know, it's what I'm always prompting people to say, but you just absolutely hit the nail on the head, which is, you know what? You put a copy of a book in their hands and they're like, oh, wow, you are what you say you are, you know? Yeah. And wow, what a story. And how do we work together? Yeah. That's the that's what what happens. So that's that's a beautiful story. So if I if I were to pry and dig a little bit and say, all right, so at twenty two, you stepped up like twenty two year olds shouldn't have to do to take you know take love and ownership of your sister, and but up until twenty two, what turned you into that person? Because you you figured out empowerment, you figured out strength you figured out uh love for your sister so and obviously that's what's now carrying you as a as a powerful entrepreneur so and it's what people need if they're going through cancer for sure yeah. <laughs> right so what's what is that how did you get it where did you inherit it where'd you find it yeah you know, i think there are a number of factors that come into play um i'm the oldest of three so there's me my brother who's only three years younger and then my sister who's 14 years younger we all have the same mother she had a different father who died before she was born and so just as the oldest i was always in charge of everything and though i did not really understand or realize it till college i was definitely um an enabler for my mother's habits so as i mentioned before she was a drug addict. She was a prescription drug addict, actually a nurse, very high functioning. But oh, but wow. when I was in school, I didn't really understand that most nurses didn't do what she did. You know, every, she worked graveyard most of the time. Every morning she emptied, emptied her pockets and there would be vials of fluid and there, there would be pills and, and our kitchen cabinets look like a pharmacy. Mm -hmm. And, wow. and, 
I didn't realize just how much responsibility I had in high school, but my mom was more excited about me getting a driver's license than I was because <laughs> then it, she could offload even more stuff and, and, right. and have that be my responsibility. And, um, and in fact, she kind of freaked out when I left home. I left, uh, she said I couldn't leave until I was 18 because I was her property. So I left four days after my 18th birthday and my birthday is mm. at the end of the summer. <laughs> and so, and I went to school in Southern California, partly to get as far away from my mother as humanly possible. It's 2000 miles. And, and I needed that. So I did need that time in college and to actually just have fun and, and to find who I was. But I do think, you know, a huge part of my character comes from the responsibility I had at an incredibly young age. Um, even before my sister was born, I was in charge of making sure my mother woke up in time to get ready for work. It drove my dad and my stepmother crazy because I would be with them on the weekends and I was my mom's alarm clock. And I barely remember this. I've practically shut it out, but it drove them crazy because I had to get to a phone by a certain time. And so I didn't even want to go out and do things because it was my job to wake my mom up to make sure she got to work on time. So and I, I don't actually know how to ask this question. Um, <laughs> Just ask, it's so fine. <laughs> at 14 years of age, you're 22. No, at, was that right? You I was 22. Adrian was eight. She yeah. was eight, 14 yeah. years difference. Yeah. Um, was there an event that caused you to take responsibility for her at that point? Yes. So about four months prior, my mom had finally gotten caught at work at the hospital shooting up morphine. And she was fired contingent on her going into a recovery program because, of course, it's actually quite common for nurses and doctors to have addiction issues, mm -hmm. especially when the drugs were so wildly available that not so much anymore. And my mother refused to go into treatment. And after that, she could not hold a full-time job anymore. And she began moving in different parts of the country, trying to find work as an unlicensed nurse. I started sending her money. And, and so things were not going well for my mom. And I asked her to let my sister visit for Christmas. And so Adrian came to visit me December 19th, 1994, for what was supposed to be a two-week Christmas vacation. And it became a permanent stay because the day after Christmas, my mother called and said she didn't want to be a mother anymore. Mm. And I didn't put it together at the time, but it was three days before my mother's 50th birthday. And so I do think, you know, it was a combination of her losing her livelihood, not dealing with her drug issues, but also a bit of a midlife crisis. And I told my mom in that conversation, I said, if I take Adrian now, I will not give her back because I could already see how bad it had been on Adrian and just just things had been going much worse than I even imagined. And my mom said, yeah, 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 okay, whatever. And so Adrian stayed. Then about eight months later, my mother called and said, okay, you can send her home now. Now, in the meantime, while I was raising Adrian, she wasn't calling. She wasn't really keeping in touch, you know, and then one day she calls and says, send her home. And I just said, no, no, you know, we finally have gotten into a rhythm. We finally have an understanding of my role in her life and she's doing well. 
And I said, absolutely not. So we did end up ultimately going to court and I sued her for legal custody and I won. Wow. What a what an intense story. <laughs> that and the story of, of your sister's um, passing and her life. Um, so we like to keep these interviews short and we've just scratched the surface <laughs> on these amazing, these amazing stories. Before we kind of ask you where to send people, what are you trying to do with Cancer University or Cancer U? And what are your big hopes within the next couple of years? What we are doing with Cancer U is meet patients and caregivers at that moment of diagnosis. So right after you hear you have cancer, or in my case, it was an ER doctor saying your sister has tumors in her liver and lungs, right in that moment, that they are automatically members to Cancer U. That the doctor says, you know what, our hospital has a partnership with Cancer U, let's get you enrolled today. Because if I had known the things that I know now, my sister's care would have gone in a very different direction. It doesn't mean she would have survived wow. the cancer, but I would have known that from day one, she needed a clinical trial and that chemo was not worth anything. All it did was make her worse. And, and I, there are so many stories like that. And so mm. our vision is that Cancer U is the university that nobody wants to go to. Mm. But if you hear those words, you know you have a place and you immediately um, get enrolled in our orientation, which is the proactive patient. And I've had so many cancer survivors who did the beta test who said they learned more in the proactive patient even though they had gone through the whole cancer journey themselves, there were things that they learned. And that's, and it's really just an orientation. You know, we have major courses and core courses and a community and coaching. And I know that we could improve outcomes for patients and, and reduce the stress on caregivers and ultimately reduce cost. You know, the more educated and empowered a patient is, especially with a really serious illness, the more costs ultimately go down. And so I want Cancer U to just be ubiquitous everywhere, like a given. But it's that one university that you hope you never have to attend. I love that. And I love that um, I can see it fitting in. I mean, I know Caring Bridge didn't used to be much. Uh, I remember the first time that someone added me to that. It was actually an elementary school teacher who was going through a cancer uh, experience, right? And Caring Bridge simple idea yeah. just like yours beautiful simple idea but advocacy is the key in that scary world of money and numbers and and outcomes and ah horrible um so how many folks have you helped over the last 20 years do you think and what is your what what, what do you think your sister would think of this craziness all of it um i don't know how many people i've helped i mean thousands for sure but because I've been coaching pro bono for over 10 years. And, and that's part of Cancer You came out of that, that I couldn't scale myself. And as for Adrian, I hope, I hope she's really proud. Mm, I'm sure she I, I hope she knows, I hope she knows that um that her story is getting out there. A lot of people ask why I wrote the book, and it was because I wanted people to know her and to know her story. Um, because I don't know any adult that could have handled cancer better than she did at 15. Mm -hmm. Where can folks read your book and where can they find out more about everything you're doing? Uh, for my nonprofit, Blue Fairy, 
which focuses on liver cancer, just go to... It's spelled funny, right? Yeah, it's spelled uh, bluefairy.org because Adrian liked that spelling better. So, <laughs> um, very with an E instead of an I. Uh, for my book, betteroffbald.com, um, all my social media is there. That's probably the easiest. Um, and all the retailers that sell my book and stuff. And then for Cancer U, it's just cancer.university. Awesome. Such a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much. So thank you, Andrea. That is just a stunning story that I have to acknowledge just how hard it must have been for you to do all that and to go through all that. And I want to thank you for making it all happen. Really, really moving to think about what you've accomplished in life and that you're certainly not done. You got a lot more to do. Can't wait to see where Cancer U is going to go and, and all of that stuff. So folks out there, stop listening to us and go go look up the great work that, that she's doing. If you do want to know more about us, you can go to thoughtpartnergroup.com and there's a little, what, a button at the top, Randy? Yeah, a little button. I think it says free assessment, something like that. Click on that, spend a minute of your time completing a very short questionnaire. Uh, we will take a minute of our time and respond to you almost immediately. And we'd also love for you to subscribe or leave comments or tell us what you think about these podcasts. Well, tell us what you think, if it's good, if it's bad. We'd prefer you not do that, but whatever. That's it. Have a great day. Bye.